You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to TC Podcast on the Go. I'm Chinhui Eng, Program Director from Toronto Centre. Financial institutions use models to inform their business decisions, for example, to price their products or to quantify risk in stress scenarios. As financial supervisors, it is important for us to have the capacity to supervise how financial institutions use these models. Toronto Centre has just released a TC note on the topic of supervision of bank model risk management. And here to talk about the topic today is the author and TC program leader, John O'Keefe. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chun. Thank you for that introduction. John, could you tell us about your experience as a financial supervisor and how you came to be involved in supervising banks in the use of models? Sure. My career as a bank regulator began when I joined the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation as a research economist. The research division provides support for all FDIC operations, including bank supervision. So my training as an economist, doing statistical modeling and so forth, led to my assignments in areas of modeling at the FDIC. I developed early warning systems for bank financial distress detection. And these are used off-site by the bank supervisory group so that they might reschedule or accelerate an on-site exam. I developed models such as the FDIC's first statistical model for deposit insurance pricing in 2007. And I've also served as a consultant to the World Bank on on many technical assistance missions, uh, often working with deposit insurers in in many countries to help them develop early warning systems as well as uh, insurance fund management tools. But my work as a bank supervisor really began in 2011, and that's when the U.S. bank supervisors finalized guidance on bank model risk management. The banks had been using models for many years, but their increasing reliance on them for key business decisions led the regulators to decide that they needed to to have guidance. And as a result, they took research staff such as myself and we were asked to serve as quantitative specialists on bank exams. So our our role was to review models to make sure that they were following best practices and guidance and and, and offered low risk to the bank. Now, in terms of the the types of bank exams I conducted, we focused on large and complex banks that rely heavily on models. Uh, There was quite a bit of diversity in the business orientation of these banks, credit card banks, banks that focused on automobile loans, airline and rail transportation, as well as traditional consumer finance and corporate finance. As a result, I got to see a wide variety of business models. Now, banks often use their models to to measure default risk and prepayment risk on loans and loan losses, but there are other types of models uh, they use, such as the Basel II capital adequacy models, 
And in, in most recent years, after the 2007 and 2009 financial crisis, myself and a lot of the other economists got involved in the supervisory stress test programs. And in the last several years, I got involved in looking at models for money laundering and anti-terrorist financing. Thank you, John, for sharing your extensive experience. Perhaps we can start by defining what a model is in the context of how they are used by banks. What do banks typically use models for? Yeah, let me begin at the beginning. Uh, models are really just simplified representations of uh, entity, object, or process. And as such, a model is not intended to be a complete and thorough representation of what is being modeled. In the case of banks, we're really talking about modeling processes, such as what determines a loan default. Now, models are designed to focus on a specific aspect of the process the modeler is interested in, and the model design is driven by its intended use. So invariably, bank models are designed to predict something, predict an event, an event such as a loan default, or the loss should the loan default. Uh, more generally speaking, bank models can fall into two categories that the public is aware of. Uh, these models used to comply with banking laws and regulations. These are called compliance models. These would be models for capital adequacy, as well as things like money laundering. And models are also used to assist in day-to-day -day business operations, or we call them business-as-usual models. Another way to look at a model is that it has three components. We call it the dependent variable that one wishes to predict. This will be some outcome. The drivers of that outcome or explanatory variables and the mathematical relationships between the two that really determines the outcome itself. Now, the, the relationships between the dependent and explanatory variables are determined through the model development process, which can be based on statistics such as regression analysis, machine learning algorithms, or even expert judgment, or a combination of the, all three. Banks are going to be using these models to inform their business decisions pretty much now across all operations. As I said, complying with laws and regulations, day-to-day -day activities, and in recent years, they're used to detect things such as external credit card fraud. And what should we as financial supervisors be concerned with regarding banks' use of models? What can go wrong? So I, in a word, I think what supervisors are most concerned about is model risk. And this is the risk that a model may provide information that's incorrect or misunderstood and misused by the bank. So this is best explained through an example. Uh, model risk becomes a serious concern when a bank is trying to model a process that's new to it, a new line of business, where it has little to no expertise or previous data. In these situations, banks sometimes feel forced to use proxies for the process they're modeling. They may use data from a closely related activity, such as applying data from an unsecured consumer loan portfolio as a proxy for automobile loans. Or they might try the wholesale application of a model from one loan category to another, where the second category has significantly different characteristics. Another example, I think the public may have seen this in the newspapers, is where the models themselves become out of date. This is typically because the process they're trying to model has fundamentally changed over time. 
we call this regime change. And this happened in the United States and many countries uh, just prior to the most recent financial crisis. And prior to that time in the 1990s, banks were lending on residential and commercial mortgages using prudential standards. Borrowers had to put 90 to 95% of the value of the property down and purchase primary mortgage insurance. But in the 2000s, lenders dropped these prudential standards and required borrowers to put no money down on banks and buy no mortgage insurance. And what occurred, we all know. The price collapse in residential markets in 2008 in the United States and elsewhere and the resulting global economic recession led to a high rate of mortgage defaults and severe losses on loans. Now, at that time, bank models of mortgage default risk and, and losses were based on the experience of the 1990s. In other words, the models were built when lending standards were prudential. But now they were being applied to predict situations where they were not prudential. And as a result, loan losses were underestimated and we had large bank failures because inadequate capitalization. John, we understand that the supervisor should be concerned not only with the contents of the model itself, but also the whole process surrounding model development. Could you walk us through what a good model development process should look like in a bank? Uh, certainly. Yeah, I think this is probably something that we, we should really focus on in this discussion, that bank supervision of model risk management is really centered on supervision of the model development process. Bank supervisors in, in the US and Europe and, and Asia really don't want to micromanage the bank and, and tell it what the best model is. They want to allow them to select one of their own. But what they're concerned about is whether it was developed on safe and sound standards. So the model development process begins with the model's purpose. Uh, for example, a loan default prediction model is not really developed to predict loan defaults. It's, it's developed to make a decision. And in, in banking cases, it would be used, for example, to risk rank credit card applications for accept-reject decisions. The next part of the development process is to select data that's appropriate for the model development. It should be well-suited, accurate, and show extensive enough variation in situations to be used in, in development. A great deal of the model development process, I'd say 80 to 90%, is involved in data preparation. This would include deciding what to do with missing values and outliers or unusually low and high values, and combining data from different data sets. After the data has been prepared and it's clean for estimation, the modeler needs to think about the best conceptual approach to be used for model estimation, whether it's a statistical regression or some machine learning algorithm. Now, as you've, you've picked a statistical approach, you want to analyze the data to understand those drivers that are meaningfully related to the outcome. You don't want to use a kitchen sink approach. So a great deal of time is spent looking at each variable that's a candidate as a driver in the model learning whether it has a, a significant relationship statistically with the outcomes and whether it's consistent. For example, is it has a positive or a negative effect. For example, an increase in personal income should probably result in a decrease in loan defaults. Once you've selected the approach, now you're going to test the variables 
you're going to look at alternative multivariate models, that is running regressions with different inputs, as an example. In finding that model that is the most accurate overall in the, in the development sample. This can be based upon statistical measures of model accuracy, but the true benchmark test of a model is whether it can predict over new data and new situations. So this would be used in model selection. We call it out of sample testing. Whatever the model or developer decides is the criteria for selecting the model. It should be based upon sound statistical principles and be consistent with the model's purpose. Model documentation is an important part of this process as well, uh, an often overlooked part. It should be comprehensive enough so that a subject matter expert could actually repeat the model in its development. And the documentation should include a model monitoring plan that has thresholds for model performance in remedial actions should the model become inadequate. Uh, let me give you an example of the model development process, maybe help reinforce these ideas. Uh, I recently developed a model to, to, to predict in, uh, internal fraud at banks, and it was intended to help the supervisor target supervisory resources to, to go to banks where fraud may be occurring. This is a real problem in banking. It doesn't occur often, but internal fraud, particularly by senior management, is, is very difficult to detect and can result in bank failures and high losses. So what was the purpose of my model? My model's purpose was to serve as an early warning system to a supervisor of the risk of serious insider fraud. So I wanted to be able to risk rank banks based on the probability that insider fraud was occurring. Now, how did I develop the model? I had to pick appropriate data. And fortunately, U.S. bank supervisors provide that data uh, when they examine banks and they find instances of insider abuse or fraud, they issue something called an enforcement action, uh, record which bank it occurred at, when, and what occurred. So I was able to get the necessary information on the instances of, of insider abuse and fraud. The next thing I looked at is, well, what characteristics of a bank might be associated with insider abuse and fraud? I, this, there were two aspects to this. There may be things that indicate the fraud itself, the activities that were carried out. There may be associated activities that result in sort of what we call the, the characteristics of a bank where fraud is allowed to occur, weak management and weak oversight. So I analyzed the data to look for potential drivers, as I said previously, looking for statistically significant and, and, and meaningful and consistent relationships. And then I estimated what I called the best model and prepared a paper for publication uh, documenting the results. Now, to help the audience understand the model development process, there may be some of them out there in their undergraduate or graduate experience who've read papers, academic papers. So I would point out that the model development process in the paper present, you know, preparation for a uh, academic publication is, is very similar to that used by banks for their internal model documentation. But obviously, since academic journals want to be short in the number of pages they publish, the uh, publication leaves out a lot of detail. 
Uh, there's one other important difference between what an academic researcher might be doing with a model versus a banker. Uh, the academic researcher is trying to develop something new and original, contribute to the literature, as we say. Whereas the banker is just trying to get a model that works well and is dependable. Uh, so when we bring new economists on and I train them for model risk exams, that's the one thing I had to reinforce almost daily. Uh, we're not picking the best model. We want one that works. Well, thank you for walking us through that model. I think it illustrates about, about the model development process very nicely. Uh, in your experience as a financial supervisor, what do you see as some common bank examination findings and how do banks rectify these? That's a good question. Despite the, the wide diversity of models and banks that I examined, there are several areas where there were common findings in our exam reports. The most common finding personally was a gap in the model documentation. Uh, model developers often fail to document all their work, which might otherwise reveal a, a safe and sound model development process, which we'll get into later in this discussion. Documentation takes time and a lot of effort and the model developers often don't see the benefit of this because it benefits other people, examiners, auditors, and the next employee to come in to replace them. So while the independent model validators, we'll talk about in a bit, who are supposed to catch these documentation gaps uh, should, uh, they often frequently do not. And I think that's because the validators uh, become too familiar with the model while they review the, the modeler's work, or the validators often defer fixing this problem to the next revision of the model. Now, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that the model developer often has moved on to another bank, changed jobs. So the examiner team or the auditor team doesn't have access to them to find out whether certain models, modeling development steps were done. And so while there is probably evidence that things were done, the documentation is no longer available. Uh, the other problem is something we call uh, key man risk. I've seen situations where a, a new individual has been assigned to take over a model. They now are responsible for updating and maintaining it. And they literally don't know key steps of how it was developed to begin with. And so they end up starting from scratch. It's a large waste of resources. Now, how can you address this, this problem? And I wrestled with this quite a bit. So I think a simple solution would be to have somebody review model documentation who is not part of the development team. And this would be before the independent validation unit. Uh, this would be most beneficial if it was done before submitting to validators. And, uh, and this third party, I think a, an appropriate group would be somebody from the bank's internal audit unit who is knowledgeable about models and model risk management at banks. Having this third eye, they would immediately say steps A and B have been left out of the documentation. Please add them. Another area where bank exam findings occur is this gaps in the model development process itself, which is, is more serious. But again, when, when you have missing documentation, we're not sure if it did, was or wasn't done. And the areas I've seen where the developer is there and I can talk to them, uh, is missing information about alternative models they considered. Uh, this can occur because the modeler itself often gets into a specialty and they think they know the information so well they don't keep current. 
Don't review the academic literature. There's also a failure to document model weaknesses. Uh, this could be, you know, the amount of uncertainty in the model uh, out, outcomes, its vulnerability to small changes in the variables, anything that could make the model more inaccurate. Uh, again, I think this is because no one ever got promoted for pointing out the weaknesses in their work. It's really hard for modelers to talk about this. Uh, another area is the failure to develop these model monitoring plans where post-production, you want to track its monthly or quarterly output, its accuracy, and specify what should be done should it, should it become inaccurate. Again, model developers, model independent model validators should catch all these gaps and they should be addressed. But sometimes this is just left out of their validation uh, programs. So what, what do you do with these larger situations where it's not just a failure to document, but the model development process itself has serious gaps and the validation team is addressing them? Uh, at banks where this has occurred, we've recommended uh, training for the independent validation unit itself, including the model validation uh, head or director, uh, so that they understand what the best practices are, what the low risk practices are, and what can be done to remediate model risk. You have talked about the independent model validators, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate on who these validators are, what do they typically do, and how can financial supervisors rely on their work? That's a, this is an important part of the model development at banks. So you have a group of individuals who usually statisticians or economists or finance PhDs who've, who've built the model. And they're working with bank staff and senior management who are subject matter experts, but they don't really know econometrics or statistics very well. So we need a group to check the modelers, a group of people with similar training and backgrounds uh, who, who can understand what was be, has been done and its benefits and costs. So typically the model validators are people with, as I said, advanced degrees in finance and economics or statistics. And if, if at all possible, previous experience developing the model. And best of all, if they've had some previous experience working at the bank, so they, they know the bank's lines of business. Now, what the model that independent model validators do is provide effective challenge to the modeler in the model itself. This is a separate unit uh, they don't report to the division where the model was built for. They don't report to any other divisions. They re typically report to somebody such as the uh, enterprise risk manager or chief financial uh, officer. They're actually able to say this model should not be used and not really be concerned about the economic consequences to the bank, as harsh as that sounds. But what do we mean by effective challenge? So the model validation unit will look at each step in the model development process and whether it follows supervisory guidance and best practices and, and also the standards of the academic literature. They'll often have time to go in and replicate steps in model development. They may actually start with the data used in model development and reproduce the data set or parts of it to see if it was done correctly. And this is often an area where model validators have significant input by saying, 
computation of certain variables was done incorrectly. They'll reproduce some of these modeling steps themselves, re-estimating uh, regressions and so forth to make sure they're done correctly. Uh, starting from scratch, they're not really reusing what the modeler has handed them. And then they'll sit back and think about alternative approaches, the accuracy test and model selection, and really not take anything for granted. They'll act often as an academic uh, journal reviewer would saying, would I use this model or not? Do I believe you or not? Do bank supervisors rely on them? I, to some extent, we do, and then not, not, not totally. Uh, typically, when I go to a bank, I, I will read, the model documentation might be 300 pages, but the validation report will be 40. So I'm going to read the validation report first to, to have areas where if the bank thinks there's a concern, I should definitely highlight it. And then you go in and read the model documentation. Nine times out of 10, I agree 100% with the model independent model validators and have no new findings and find myself just reinforcing their recommendations. Uh, the validators will typically, when they find a weakness in a model, offer remedial measures such as re-estimate an equation, consider these five additional techniques and so forth. And they'll give the bank a period of time, six months to a year, to make those changes. And bank supervisors will often go along with that. Now, at the end of the validation, independent validation has a choice of three findings. They'll either say, the, we'll accept the model for use at the bank as is. We accept it for use pending your addressing our, our findings, answering questions we might have, rechecking some statistics. And that must be done within a certain time frame. Uh, if it's not done to the validator's satisfaction, the model can't be used. Or they might outright reject the model, which is unfortunately very rare. I've seen a lot of models that should have been rejected, but, but it's very hard to, there are business consequences to model rejections. Well, thank you for describing the model validation processes uh, within the bank and how supervisors can rely on those. I, I wonder if we could now turn to cooperation between supervisors, uh, specifically the cooperation between home and host supervisors in supervising bank models, especially models used by internationally active banks with extensive cross-border operations. How can home and host supervisors cooperate effectively in the model supervision process? So I have two perspectives on this. One is as a supervisor and examiner at internationally active banks in the United States, there were several institutions I examined where the models were developed at the headquarters in a different country, that's the, the home, and all the bank model risk management policies, practices, and procedures came out of the headquarters. Now, that makes good business sense. If you have a global operation, you don't necessarily want to have different policies for each of your affiliates, regardless of the country they're, they're operating in. The difficulty came when we were trying to get information about the model itself, model documentation, talk to model developers, or even validators. If they exist, if they resided in the home country, the U.S. bank supervisor has no access to them. Uh, we only have authority over the bank in the United States. 
this becomes a larger problem, I think, for banks that you follow the Basel II advanced approach capital requirements, Basel II and three, where the the host country capital levels are being set at the home office based upon a model that the host country doesn't have full access to. But it also affects, I think this is underappreciated, day-to-day business models also used by these internationally active banks. And so I think Basel and other and European Central Bank have issued lots of guidance and papers talking about home host supervision and have recommended the use of things such as bilateral agreements and memoranda of understanding to make sure that the home country makes everything that's necessary available to the host country so they can supervise the bank. Also, allowing the home country supervisor to come to the host to carry out supervisory activities so that they can get a consolidated view of the bank. In my experience, though, that didn't really work for business as usual models, things outside of the internationally used models, such as I said, the Basel capital requirements and liquidity requirements. What we ended up doing was requiring the host bank here in the United States to set up its own policies, practices, and procedures and show an independent management of its own risks, as well as have modelers and validators in the United States that we could talk to and interact with. We did, we were keenly aware of, you know, duplication of efforts and the burden of asking for this sort of overlay. Uh, so the staffing requirements we requested were relatively minimal. John, I'm wondering if we could turn to another important dimension in this discussion, which is technology. As we all know, technology in the financial industry develops very quickly. And we have the development of machine learning models powered by algorithms and artificial intelligence or AI neural networks. Could you give us a flavor of what you are seeing in machine learning models and how the technology is developing? Yes. So machine learning is simply defined as a a process by which the output of the model, the prediction, uh, learns from the data. So it's data-driven. It's not prescribed beforehand. That actually occurs in regression or traditional statistical models, as as a matter of of fact. But people don't really think about ordinary linear regression as an e-learning model. What they're thinking about are these neural networks and and non-statistical algorithms. So let me give you several perspectives on this. Uh, Machine learning has developed over time as as in in bank use. Around 2012, 2014, many banks began using machine learning models for credit card operations. They had previously used them for internal and external fraud detection. And they, they began using them for regular business around uh, that time. And I would say by this time, virtually all your large credit card banks are using machine learning models to manage their credit card portfolios, as well as other, other commercial portfolios, where the customer is relatively small, but their characteristics can be uniform in subgroups, as opposed to large commercial customers where wholesale finance should be used. Now, another perspective on this is that for, for machine learning, the algorithms we're talking about, what they fundamentally do is it's an optimization process, seeking a high or low point in the data set, 
based upon certain criteria. These algorithms, many of them would say for artificial neural networks, were developed decades ago. For almost all the algorithms used today, there's 20 to 25 years experience with them. And there has not been much advancement in the fundamental algorithms themselves. There have been modifications to them, sometimes joining of algorithms, but there has not been any quantum leap forward in machine learning algorithms such as, you know, the relativity theory, what it did to physics in 1905 or what options pricing did to finance in 1975. So the machine learning is is still state-of-the-art. The second perspective on why machine learning then is advancing is that there been there's been substantial advance in the scale and scope of data that modelers can apply machine learning to. Machine learning can take advantage of, of data that regression models can't, such as a handwriting sample or the sound of my voice or facial recognition. And so since virtually every aspect of our life now is digitized and stored somewhere, modelers can use this in their businesses. Uh, another perspective is the why machine learning models are advancing is the increasing capacity of computers to process large-scale data quickly. This determines whether the machine learning algorithm can be applied efficiently and effectively. If one large bank, it was using machine learning to manage its credit card portfolio, which had literally 1 billion data points. And it took four or five days for the model to run and, and re-estimate. That was still, since they didn't update it every week, that was still practical for the bank. But if you go back 25 years, that, that would not have even been feasible. And then the, the final perspective on machine learning is that there have been advances in computer languages that can be used to code and program machine learning algorithms that facilitate all aspects of, of model development. So it's, it's really in the data the computers and computer language that we're seeing the advances in machine learning. And what challenges do machine learning models pose to financial supervisors? Well, machine learning models have some pluses and minuses. First is there's certainly reduced model development costs. Machine learning models don't require a lot of the statistical steps used in regression models. Statistical models make serious assumptions about the data, its distribution individually and collectively, and requires uh, multiple tests to make sure that the data is in agreement with the assumptions of the statistical model. Machine learning models assume nothing. They just take the data as given and process it to look for, for optimal solutions. So that all that work is can be skipped. The other benefit of machine learning models is that they can be applied to sort of non-traditional data. This I've seen this in a lot of smaller banks, $3 billion to $4 billion sized banks, where they're able to reach into new market segments. Loan applicants and credit card applicants, they would have traditionally turned down because they don't have a prior credit history or employment history that would be required by their model. Now they can use other information, such as how many years you've been in school, what your degree is, how many airline points you have. And so there's this expansion of credit that, that can come with machine learning models. And that's why another reason you're going to see a lot of banks using these. 
But there's a couple negatives with machine learning models. One is there's a reduced transparency. For some of these techniques, uh, you can track for the input variables or drivers and see what their contribution to the prediction is. But for many of them, you cannot. It's a black box. And so that can become a serious concern in issues such as fair lending, consumer finance, are all the variables put into the model allowed by law and regulation. That way a bank can get around this by pre-screening the inputs. There's also nonconformity with traditional statistical modeling approaches and increased model complexity. While I actually was taught many of these algorithms when I went to college, and I, I won't tell you how long that was ago, many individuals at banks really don't understand these algorithms. And so that, that kind of complexity is a problem. Well, thank you, John. This has been a fascinating conversation. So perhaps to conclude, I wonder if you have some words of advice for our listeners who may be in the process of setting up a model supervision unit within the financial supervisory agency or are currently recruiting expertise into uh, these kinds of units. What are the top skill sets that financial supervisors would need to equip their bank model examiners with? So in my experience, the, the optimal skill set would be a combination of education and training in statistics, also in econometrics, the application of statistics for model development. In, in more recent years, also many programs involve training in machine learning models in something called data science. So having a formal training in this background gives you sort of the academic side of this problem. Uh, what are the standards for a safe and sound model? The other would be prior education in economics and finance, as opposed to something like pure math or an engineering degree, because most of the models are used to have an economic or financial consequence. So those are the fields that apply most closely. The third area would be the modeler or the person working independent validation or working as a supervisor, I should say. Uh, should have prior experience in actually building models. Uh, when I joined the FDIC, I spent a decade or more building models for FDIC and other clients and documenting them. So you, having a full appreciation of the work involved in model development and how it should be done for publication is, is very important. Thank you very much, John. I've been speaking with John O'Keefe on the topic of supervision of bank model risk management. Thank you for joining us.